Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Disclaimer time. This is where I tell everyone to lighten up. It's just a podcast. Trading is like that roller coaster at the amusement park. Thrilling, unpredictable, and potentially stomach-churning. What works for one person might leave another clutching their hat in the wind. Our hosts and guests, they're awesome, knowledgeable, full of insights, but we're not financial advisors. So don't rush to make any investment decisions based solely on our banter. Always consult with a professional or do your own research. Plus, let's face it, we like to have fun, laugh, enjoy the trading ride together. It's all in the name of good podcasting fun. So remember, take it easy, don't bet the farm, and keep your seatbelts on at all times. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the China Shop, home of the Band of Traders. I'm your host, Kyle, and today I am joined by the CEO of Level Fields AI, Andrew Einhorn. To learn more about today's guests, make sure you check out their website at levelfields.ai, where you can find demo videos of the platform, as well as a ton of interesting case studies, to say the least. <laughs> and last but not least, please uh, feel free to reach out with any suggestions, corrections, or questions for future guests. You can do that via email at bandoftraders at gmail.com, or you can join our free Discord server where a bunch of amazing people gather to share our struggles and lessons learned with other like-minded market aficionados. All those links will be in the episode description, so you can peruse them at your convenience. But now that we got the promotional stuff out of the way, let's get to know Andrew. Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, what are we, like five days from Christmas, four days from Christmas? It's been a long year. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, too. So tell me a little bit about yourself. I was looking through your resume, and it seems like you've had quite an impressive career. But uh, I was curious, I didn't see much in there about trading. Like, have you been interested in trading all your life? Or is that something that's kind of been like a new chapter? No, I've been trading since I was 14 years old. Mm. Um, claim to fame back then was, you know, I owned Netflix when it was a dollar stock. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sold it at the equivalent of 20. Thought I was a genius. And then, of course, went on a run to 400 plus. I think I bought it at 20 and I sold it at 300 and then kicked myself because I didn't wait for uh, 500. <laughs> but I was young then. I didn't know any better. I mean, that was a hell of a hell of a run on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, it was. I I was one of those that 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 took the opposite view and when Blockbuster started shipping the DVDs and said, "Uh-oh, <laughs> you know, they're coming for Netflix." And I got out of the stock and little did I know. Uh Why didn't that work? Just out of curiosity, is it because they weren't actually trying to create their own content? Is that what gave Netflix the edge? It was just cost, you know, uh... the brick and mortar cost. Uh they just couldn't scale quite as fast because the profit margin was minuscule compared to just mailing cds from one warehouse right yeah i remember my grandparents got the subscription to that i was like oh, this is kind of cool 
Yeah, I did too at the time. And I was like, well, this is kind of nice because I could bring it in or I could mail it. The convenience factor was there. Right. And uh, I think I was still nostalgic for, you know, going in with a date and browsing videos. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now we spend most of our time browsing, looking for something to watch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now it's the same as if you don't leave your house. <laughs> so so Netflix was a good one. Uh, you were 14 Netflix at the time? Good, I was, yeah, I was 14, 15, you know, got into the kind of the pre- not to date myself too much, but you know, the, the pre-crash of 2000 mm-hmm. was really active. And then, you know, just continued to invest and trade, actually um, went to graduate school and, you know, anything outside of the tuition payment itself, rent, food, entertainment, that was all paid with stock trades that I was making. <laughs> Were you trading with your <laughs> tuition loans? No, okay, good. <laughs> Talk to a few people have done that. It was, big disclaimer, <laughs> don't, don't, please. <laughs> Yeah, don't do that. Definitely not on leverage either. Right. No, it was back then it was um the biggest win was uh Bale. Bale? Yeah, uh copper mining company. So this was right at the turn of uh China, huge GDP expansion, like nine and a half percent growth. Right. And they were just devouring natural resources like copper and steel and Bale, uh the South American company was there to to feed the beast, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And the stock returned like 12x, I think, inside of five or six years. So Ooh. I had gone pretty big into it. And that was like, okay, you know, right. If you look at your, your total expenses for a year, half of it went to tuition, <laughs> half of it went to living. All the living stuff was covered by that stock, which is great. That's awesome. Uh, so I've been, and I've been active ever since. And I, I get my, my worst, I think, trading move ever made was, I remember, 2006, I was sitting, uh, I was consulting for the, the Pentagon at the time, and I stole some time to to make a trade, and I was going to put everything I had into Apple stock, because I was just so convinced that Apple was going to change the world. Right. And my, my finger was hovering over that return button, and I just, I couldn't do it. Uh, I, you know, I had too many people in my head saying, oh, you know, tech changes too often, you can't go all in, you got to diversify, yada, yada. That one move cost me 13 million dollars oh my goodness Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. you didn't put anything yeah. on i mean just a little bit I, at least i don't know why i know i don't know why i didn't it was kind of like one of those just just tail between the legs moment walked away right oh. come back and buy a little bit and i just i didn't uh, of course later on i did when it was much higher price but you know, right uh still that the story goes. those those the, the ones that you don't execute on sometimes are worse than the ones that you do and you lose it's true. You look back and you know, I recalculate it probably once a year. Oh, is it just as a reminder to yourself or just because you like punishment? Just as a reminder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, some of the work that you did uh, before. Like, So what did you go to school for? Let's start with that. Because like, it doesn't look like you went to school for trading because I don't really think that exists. At least nope. not that I've seen. No, I mean, undergraduate, I studied psychology, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, if you... I'm a if you look at it in a certain way, like that's behavioral psychology is the market dynamics, right? Why do people do it? And then it was into statistics. So I was doing the clinical psychology and I was taking a lot of statistics courses and teaching some, and then came out and started doing research and worked in public health as an epidemiologist Mm -hmm. because I was big into data mining and analysis and uh, studied things like mercury toxicity in the Gulf of Mexico and how do uh, environmental contaminants cause skin cancer and 
mm. areas that were contaminated by big companies like GE that made uh, plastic right, and things right. like that. And so I, I was like the go-to stats guy. I was like, hey, prove it, right? <laughs> and uh, and that was fun, but then wanted to kind of be into uh, in a more corporate world to prevent some of these things from happening, all this contamination. So I went to school for uh, engineering management mm-hmm. and environmental studies. Okay. And at GW, and then, you know, from there, I started consulting for a lot of different government agencies through this company that went public uh, while I was working for them called ICF, which is actually a pretty good stock, as it turns out, which I didn't buy also. <laughs> you <laughs> didn't get no options? Them. They didn't give you any? No, ah. They gave it to me. I just, uh, at the time, I just, I don't know, I think I was young and angry at the management too much. To, to buy <laughs> Uh, but they ended up doing really well. And um, I got into a lot of different gigs, you know, from consulting for FAA Office of Commercial Space Transportation when they were trying to green light horizontal space launches and what ended up, you know, later becoming kind of SpaceX and other things that got regulated. I want to ask more about that. Sure. Uh, so when did that work take place? Like how how long did it take before the first commercial flights like actually started taking place? Because it was like, it was a good amount of time, wasn't it? It was a good amount of time, yeah. So when the government needs to regulate a new industry, one of the first things they have to do is an environmental impact statement. So mm-hmm. these documents can be 1,200 pages long, and it's literally everything from how this new industry is going to affect the flora, the fauna, you know, the mm-hmm. space and our safety and our health. And so I had a couple sections of that document. One section was orbital debris. That oh, was God, yeah. Well, I had to, <laughs> it's still an issue. <laughs> still an issue. And my job is to analyze the potential human impact of orbital debris on mm-hmm. human safety, both on the planet and during launches. And so, you know, there's lots of fancy algorithms to determine kind of the speed of the debris and the size and the impact and how much damage it can do and the rate of decay and things like that. Um, because every time you have a launch, right, one of these missiles are going up and it's just pieces of it are just falling back to right. Like a lot of those micrometeors are like just little flecks of paint, I think, right. That just kind of peel off. It's actually most of the time it's unburned fuel. Oh, really? That turns into ice and it becomes basically a piece of ice traveling at like 300,000 miles an hour, which right. On an impact basis is like taking a six foot safe and running it down the street at 300 miles an hour. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of those that can't be tracked. There's, you know, millions of them now that the NASA tracks regularly, but can't track them all. And so yeah, because they can, because what, what's the, the size that they can even track? It's like one millimeter yeah, in diameter and anything less than that, they can't, right. can't really pay attention to and big debris turns into little debris too which is also right. scary right and then <laughs> one little piece hits something big then you have a lot of other little pieces and so i actually saw there's a startup that had a satellite system that was 100 percent ai fully devoted mm-hmm. to just tracking orbital debris that is is that the one that was planning on doing the cleanup efforts too to try to capture some of that stuff because Trying no. to catch a three hundred thousand mile an hour fastball probably is <laughs> yeah, exactly. Take some take some work. <laughs> That's a tough one. I know. I don't think it's the same one. This is just like a tracking software mm-hmm. system, you know, to locate and then help identify, you know, on the ground because they're launching. They have to launch through all this space debris, space junk. Right. They're like, all right, well, you've got to wait into this certain window of junk clears before we can get the rocket through it, which is is kind of insane. But and that's only getting worse as we 
have more launches too, right? Uh, yeah, in, in some cases it gets worse. In some cases, because we're more reusable, uh, it's getting mm-hmm. better. You know. Oh, because we're bringing the boosters back and reusing exactly. them now that unburnt fuel isn't. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And so those large pieces that had traditionally fallen back to earth and been disposed of are a little less uh, doing that mm. a little less so. So you know, at the same yeah. time, you've got more launches. But that was that was what has to happen. You have to have all of this science and all this rigor goes into these these environmental impact statements before the government can approve anything. Mm-hmm. And so we had to look at different ways that they were launching vehicles because at the time, the prevailing viewpoint was that the horizontal launch vehicle was going to be the way of the future, that they would take like a Boeing 747 and they mm-hmm. would put a spaceship on top of it. And then the right. 747 would get to like 35, 40,000 feet and then the spaceship would take off from there. So yeah. saving fuel, but, um, and they did that for a while, but it turned out obviously with SpaceX, not to be the, the main way. Virgin Galactic still tries to use that, Yep. but they don't actually really go anywhere either though. <laughs> no, no, they, they're been struggling, but I, I do yeah. remember seeing, I think they had parked at Dulles airport, uh, like the, the, the space shuttle. The, oh yeah. And the I, carrier plane or the. Yeah, like the, the actual original like space shuttle went and retired it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 747, <laughs> getting ready to go into the Air and Space Museum. <laughs> I remember coming down into Dulles and landing and seeing that there, like, you know, stacked mm-hmm. on top of the plane, which was cool. I think I remember seeing, did they have something like that in Houston, too? Because I think I remember seeing one of those there, too. It moved around, yeah. 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 They, had a, they had a few flights uh, back and forth. But, yeah. So it was... Um, it was a lot of that kind of work. And then at some point I got hired by the Pentagon to, to develop a technology system that was monitoring mm-hmm. environmental and safety events. And so mm-hmm. you can imagine like military industrial complex, right? They're always doing missile tests out West and they're always doing training exercises and mortars and blowing stuff up. So there was a lot of events to track. I was a part of one of those. Uh, the sub I was on when I was in the military uh, launched three test flights, three test missiles uh, from the Pacific into a training range somewhere in California. Oh, nice. You were Navy? Yeah. Yes, sir. Oh, good. Thank you for your service. I appreciate that. I you was. too. <laughs> Thank you. I was I was the, the, the contractor, the yellow badge guy that was always around, uh, but worked out of the I'm machine. sure you could have gotten paid more somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> but... There was one other thing that I saw in your your resume that I kind of wanted to touch on before we move on to, to what you're doing now. Um, the work that you did with Georgetown, mm-hmm. uh, you developed some technology for identifying disease outbreaks. And this was like 10 years before COVID. Yeah. Curious if any of that work was actually used during the outbreak to kind of help combat it. I, I'm not sure. I lost touch with uh, the program. So what, what it was designed, it was paid for by Department of Health and Human Services Mm-hmm. And the idea was, okay, can we catch pandemics early? That was part one, looking at um, if patterns of symptoms started to emerge in an emergency room and you could log those symptoms electronically through the medical records, then the right. system could start to identify, hey, there's, you know, for some reason, there's an anomaly. There's three times the number of pneumonia cases that just walked through the door of the last 24 hours, you know. Right. So that was part one is a sort of the early detection. The second part of it was looking at whether or not the hospital had capacity because mm-hmm. part of the problem, particularly during emergencies, is there's not a lot of great coordination that's happening between the first responders and the hospitals. Okay. So sometimes the EMTs will pick you up, 
bring you to the hospital and they find out there's no beds in the hospital. And then you're sitting in the hallway on a gurney waiting seven hours to be seen when across town, there might be another hospital with plenty of beds. And so right. we were trying to develop, you know, a system that, that did both things that could kind of give almost like a Google maps interface of traffic, but for right. flow of patients in different hospitals during mass kind of casualty or mass infection. I would have, I would have thought the 911 operators would be the one directing that. Like, oh, don't send them to this one. It's too full. Send them here. It's been, you know, old school uh, communication, right? And mm-hmm. so that in a in a in a fast paced like moving environment where the bed situation might be shifting by the minute, it's not possible to right. do human coordination. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, think about like New York during COVID, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was a very fluid situation. You had the Navy yeah. coming in. You had you know, Marriott's turning into hospital systems. And so like that, you can't, you can't really rely on human intelligence quite as, as well as the automation. So it was early on and we launched it, um, you know, just pilot stage Georgetown mm-hmm. hospital. And, uh, you know, as far as a pilot go went well, I, you know, left Georgetown after a couple of years and then the, and I'm not sure what happened to the project, you know, over the next eight or nine years from there, I'm sure they evolved it. But um, I would say, you know, we were successful in, in developing yeah. it. And the, the premise of it was the same. It's sort of like you got a real-time data monitoring and kind of algorithmic analysis mm-hmm. of data, which is... That sounds quite familiar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of what you're doing now with uh, Level Fields. Is that, right. is that correct? You want to kind of walk me through how you got involved with, uh, with that project? Sure. Yeah, there's... Um, there's some weird segues in my career, so I'll give the, the segue to this one. Yes, please. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so historically, kind of on the buildup, I had done three or four different event monitoring systems, you the DOD one and uh, a couple other ones, in, including the Georgetown Hospital System. And then, you know, when we were building the technology, I got really hooked on just developing technology. I loved being kind of the architect. I can't code at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but really? I can kind of design. Yeah, I'm not a coder, but I. Can... What's the difference then between the architecture and the actual coding? Uh, sort of like you know, if you were to go and and build a house, someone would mm-hmm. design what the house looks like from the outside, where the doors and windows go, and what the flow of the house looks like. But I couldn't tell you where the pipes should go. I couldn't build gotcha. a foundation. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, and sometimes that that causes some rifts between myself and the developers. <laughs> <laughs> Like, this is not possible. This is not possible. And I'm like, make it happen. You know, this is how it has to be. We've uh, been binge watching that uh, Silicon Valley on HBO Max. Uh, <laughs> is that uh, that's kind of what I'm going for for the visual references. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, it's pretty accurate. With the, <laughs> with the guy, I forget oh, his name with the long hair, sort of the DevOps guy. Saying, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, do something that they're not allowed to do. Yeah, that guy. Yep. Yeah. I know. Oh, God, what's his name? Oh, whatever. Anyway, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, you. it's fine. Um, so ended up starting a company around 2010. And the company was, uh, it was an event and kind of reputation management monitoring system. So largely mm-hmm. called media intelligence or media monitoring system. Okay. And we, you know, at first we had government clients and then kind of expanded into private sector. And so effectively what we were doing is we had these, these big publicly traded companies that were clients and we would be given, you know, $50,000, $100,000 contracts a year for the software system to kind of monitor what was going on reputationally about that particular company. For example, 
if you know we had a, a rail company that was a client and every time the train literally came off the tracks, our software would be able to identify that being reported on Twitter, mm-hmm. flag it, send it up to the corporate communications folks and say, you know, you've got a problem. Get on top of this. Get on top of this, get your talking points ready, you know, get your people briefed, get to the details. And, you know, that was the case, whether it was in ExxonMobil or Discover Card, it was positive and negative events all the time. Mm-hmm. What we noticed was this pattern that, you know, the event would happen, the share price would either go down or go up, and that would happen every time. And so this rail company might lose 15, 20, 30 trains a year. And each time the share price would be going down somewhere between one and 3%, you know, for X number of days, and then it would rebound. But they're losing or gaining like a billion dollars in market cap, right? Each time. Hmm. Wow. And so we were watching this across about a hundred different public companies that were clients over the years. And I always had it in the back of our head, like, are we on the wrong side of this? <laughs> yeah, it kind of sounds like it. <laughs> you know, like we're, we're kind of helping them save a billion dollars or make a billion dollars in market cap here or there. We're getting our, our 50,000 for the company. That's nice. But, you know, maybe there's something else to do. And we kind of just parked that for a second until we met somebody who worked at a hedge fund, mm-hmm. um, big $65 billion hedge fund who came on as a, like a business advisor for the company and said, you guys have awesome tech. Uh, You guys are really smart, but you're in the wrong freaking space. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we're like, what do you mean? (laughs) He's like, well, you're, you know, you're, you're selling to people that don't have any money in the communications world. It's Mm -hmm. like, you need to be in financial services. And so he kind of said, let me show you, you know, we kind of exchange services a little bit, if you will. Okay. He wanted to know how we did what we did to get the information so rapidly and so accurately. And so we, we started sharing those bits of wisdom and he was trading better because of it mm-hmm. and outperforming his peers as we were given some of the methodology. And in return, he would introduce us to everybody else in the hedge fund, like the CEO, all the traders, other hedge funds, other banks. And I kind of was just put a, almost like an investigative reporter behind the scenes, just trying to understand how the industry right. worked, interviewing people. I'm like, so why did you trade that way? And you'd walk into these places and you'd hear nothing. Like it would mm-hmm. be nobody talking, just 200 people staring at screens, looking at Bloomberg terminals, trading off news <laughs> headlines with like big, you know, kind of trading boards, uh, right. digital boards around. And started to see kind of some of the opportunity to maybe expedite some of the information. Um, and it was, you know, kind of sort of in our head of like, maybe we could do something like what we're doing, but, you know, bridge the gap with financial services. And, you know, for one reason or another, it, it didn't materialize to get the expansion capital that we were mm-hmm. needing to do that. Uh, our board said, you know what, if you're going to grow at this level and dilute this much, you might as well just sell the company because it's the mm-hmm. same outcome until you get to year six. So we ended up selling the company in, in 2019. And the technical... Well, sorry, when you sell the company, you don't lose your tech, do you? No, we... we well, we we lost the, the tech that we had built. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kept the technical people. Okay. And we said, all right, next time, let's build it better, smarter, mm-hmm. faster, stronger with AI. Right. Uh, we had done, you know, natural language processing and big data and all that. And then this was like the evolution. 
So we kind of took the lessons learned and rebuilt like a new version of the monitoring system that we had pretty quickly. And then we layered AI over it. And we we're really experimental up until, you know, end of 2019, trying to figure out, okay, what do we really want to do with the tech? You know, mm-hmm. we could we could do all these different, we had a bunch of different ideas that were thrown out from like self-populating databases to AI for personal injury attorneys to vet cases and things like that. And so we were just right. kind of spitballing. And at the same time, I was, I was trading on the side um, mm-hmm. and I was just making some money and doing a lot of event-based trading. And then COVID hit early 2020 and you know the world stopped everybody started freaking out that the market was just going to be obliterated for years and we're going into a global depression and you know we were getting calls from everybody from parents to cousins and brothers who were like i think all our money is going to go away and at that moment you know because of my background in public health and statistics i just sort of locked myself in an office mm-hmm. for like 80 hours. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to look up every pandemic that's ever hit, how governments have responded, how the markets have responded, spreadsheeted it all out, <laughs> analyzed it, looked at like <laughs> micro examples like Zika and said, you know what? In six months, the market's going to be fine. We're going to be right back to where we were. Oh, that's a bold prediction. It was a bold prediction. <laughs> I called a lot of names for that one. <laughs> 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 and uh, I was like, no, that's what that's what the data shows. And, you know, it was, it was funny because you see different things that were not the size and scale of COVID, right? But the same right. pattern. So when, for instance, when Zika hit uh, the U.S., we closed the ports in Miami, we closed the Miami airport. Mm-hmm. And a lot of travel stopped going to South America. And so the airline stock sold off about 6.5%. The cruise ship stock sold off about... Six and a half percent on the the first day of of transmission of Zika in the United States. Fast forward to COVID four years later, and it was the exact same thing. The first time we got a COVID transmission, intra-country transmission, Mm -hmm. uh, airline stock sold off six and a half percent. Cruise ships sold off six and a half percent. So there's obviously patterns in the way that people were behaving and looking at and reacting to kind of past events. And so that it locked in this understanding of the market that, you know, it's really about events. Events Mm -hmm. change the course of everything. And the macro scale, it can change the course of a a whole economy. And micro scale on the company level, they can change the course for a week or the trajectory of the company, depending on the size of the event. And so it was really locked in our minds at that point that, wow, okay, so what we really need to do is build an event-driven system that gives everybody an understanding of what's about to happen in the market so that we can make decisions better and less emotional, not using data. Okay. So, I mean, I was looking through some of the case studies. Uh, The case studies kind of show like, okay, here we had a signal like activist investor has taken up a sizable position in this company here. We expect this to happen. Is that part of the the analysis that you guys do? Like, okay, when this series of events happens, this is what the typical response is? Yes. Or are they all kind of looked at individually? It shows uh, all the historical data and then it okay. analyzes the grouping of events. So you could look at, you know, of the types of activists that we track it will show, okay, over the last 45 events, the average one-day move is a positive 3.5%. Mm-hmm. The average 10-day move is a positive 6.5%. Uh, 
And then you can look further out, you know, you can look a month later or six months later, 12 months later and see, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. There was a little move on the first day, but the real movement happened like six months later as these activists Mm -hmm. began pushing for changes within the organizations, getting people fired and, and, you know, increasing EBITDA and then doing big shareholder reward programs like buybacks and dividend increases. Mm -hmm. And so what the system's designed to show you, right, is like you can just look at that analytically and say, okay, how am I going to play this? I can do a one-day trade, I can do a 10-day trade, or I can just buy it, hold it, and wait for this average move, which looks about 30 40% in, you know, 6 to 12 months. When I hit that, I'll exit out. Right. Right. And then you, we have other data sets that you might be able to do the inverse of, right? So mm-hmm. if, if a big stock buyback occurs and we'll flag it and usually within 30, 45 minutes of the company announcing it, we'll show what normally happens. Uh, and then you can filter by groups of companies. So you can say, I don't want all companies. I just want large cap tech mm-hmm. right, that are right, right. EBITDA positive. And then I can see, okay, this grouping actually reacts differently than small cap bio, mm-hmm. right? Okay, I can see that being pretty powerful. Very, very powerful because you, you effectively know what the market psychology is, mm-hmm. and that's what it's doing: is analyzing patterns of past behavior. And the market's driven largely by, you know, psychology of right. people, right? Even the algorithm markets run on emotions. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They're still programmed by people who have emotions and you know have certain beliefs. Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. I'm glad that you you kind of mentioned the different time horizons on there between the one day, one week, six month, because uh, one of the things I noticed when doing research on the company was there seemed to have been like a misconception or misapplication that's prevalent where people think that they're trading the new spike. Right. And that's not necessarily the case. And that's one of the things that I think you guys have done a fantastic job of is actually responding to those comments and walking people through like, no, 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 this isn't how you should be looking at it. These are the opportunities that were present oh, and going through and actually interacting with the people. Uh, I think you're going to win a lot of fans if you continue doing that, that mentality. We try. Not everyone's nice. <laughs> no, no, they're not. But uh, the effort is appreciated by people like me. No, that's good. That's good to see. Sometimes you wonder if you're just, you know, running up against someone that just wants to uh, stand <laughs> on a soapbox and Look, be loud. Some people want to be pissed and that's just, there's nothing you're going to be able to do to help those guys. But the person who's going through and reading the responses and doing their own, you know, due diligence, mm-hmm. they're going to see that and be, they're going to know like, okay, this guy's just angry. This guy gave a very well thought out response to him. Like it's, it's, 
they're not the vocal majority. That's the problem. Yes. But I guarantee you that they're the people that you should be worried about. For sure. And we always have the the issue of when, you know, when we bring people over from those platforms and they actually mm -hmm. like using the service, they don't go back to those platforms because they don't need them anymore. Right. That's another good point. Right. So there's always a negative bias on those social mm -hmm. channels because they're like, well, I don't need to be in a forum. Now I have level fields. Why would I right. rely on the <laughs> kindness of strangers when I can use this data driven system? Mm -hmm. Right. That doesn't try to do pump and dumps like they march them all over, you know, CNBC and they're just pumping stocks so they could sell it to you while they're while you're buying it. Uh, God. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, Hard to watch. I, I do want to <laughs> point out I do want to point out one of the case studies that was on there. Mm -hmm. It was actually the GameStop one mm -hmm. where it was a fairly fairly substantial time before the actual squeeze had happened. Right. You guys had noted an activist investor taking a position. Uh, and I think even the trade that you had drawn up on there had already played out before the squeeze even started. Yep. Yeah, that, that one for sure. Because, you know, those short squeezes, I would call it 95% of the time, they're happening on the basis of some event that's mm -hmm. changing the sentiment. You know, there's a rallying cry. And this is where we say, like, events change everything because have a quiet company that nobody has ever heard of like GameStop mm -hmm. you know you see it in the mall but you don't know it's a stock probably right and all of a sudden you know some big activist investor Ryan Cohen comes in and takes a big piece of it and then there's a it gets noticed by a small community of people that watch this sort of thing that were just fanatics for that particular stock but they pointed at that as like a catalyst mm -hmm. for the thesis that you know this this company is going to come back and so right. if it wasn't for that, then you couldn't also make the argument for, oh, let's kill the hedge fund, right? Like killing the hedge right. fund came after the argument of, hey, there's a real business here. They're going to turn it around. You know, there's momentum. We can do this. Oh, by the way, it just happens to be the most shorted stock in the market. We can squeeze the hell out of <laughs> right. it too. And so, yeah, it was, it was up 300% even before the short squeeze happened, just on the basis of that particular event. And so our kind of guidance on the system based on the data is that, mm -hmm. you know, with these events, it's a six to 12 month hold. And that's how long it typically takes for the activists to start making changes that are at least public, if mm -hmm. not implemented, right? So they might announce that they're going to do an asset sale, but they haven't sold the asset. That alone will move the share price. Right. Say, oh yeah, I'm taking over as CEO now, or I'm going to push for a board seat. Mm -hmm. And they go to war and they battle, right? And their whole motivation and most of these guys are billionaires most of the, the motivation is money they want to drive up the share price so right. they're sort of your best friend like as a trader you're like all right well, <laughs> you think man like i'll bet on you that's <laughs> another good point yeah and you're betting on an activist investor you're you know that you're at least getting somebody who's in there like fighting for your position exactly and if you looked at uh, salesforce it's a great mm -hmm. example Perfect oh example. yeah i've been owning that one since it was in the like nineteen dollars a share. Oh wow! Okay, so you went through a couple yeah. roller coasters on that one. So a few of them. I trimmed it at three hundred when it uh, spiked during the pandemic. Good, um, good for yeah. you. Well, you remember, so it went from three hundred to like a hundred and change. You know, called yep. one hundred and five, one hundred and ten. <laughs> right? That's a big drop. That's about when the activists came in. The first one. I didn't realize there were activists in that. I guess I hadn't been paying that much attention to it. It's one of my long-term holds. Yeah, it's uh, it's all on our platform. So if mm -hmm. you were to look at a chart, 
on the level fields platform, it will show when the, um, you know, you see the big dump dip and then all of a sudden you see a little jump. That's when the activist came in and it will show the annotation right on the chart. And it moved, you know, five, six percent on the day. But then it starts this um, kind of list or, you know, catalyzes all these other events. So the mm-hmm. next thing that happens is activist pushes for layoffs, mass layoffs. Then they push for more layoffs. Then they get rid of one of the two CEOs because why do you need to pay two CEOs when you can pay right. one CEO, right? That's an easy way to cut some costs. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, they had laid off like 12% of the workforce. Mm-hmm. And then another activist comes in, joins the party and says, I like what I see here. So now the activists together, these two activists own at least 10% of the company. I don't remember the, you know whether it's 20 or more, but it had to be 10 and at that point, the very next step is a $20 billion stock buyback that they launch with all the savings <laughs> of firing 12% of the workforce. And the share price at that point just starts to shoot up. Yeah. Right. And at, at that moment, that narrative on you know CNBC and the other channels starts to shift from it's a company that's never making money to they are making the changes needed to be a profitable company. Salesforce is back, you know, da, 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 da. And the narrative shifts. Mm-hmm. And so the stock price goes from, you know, 110 to 170 over that time period. Right. And, you know, as an investor, the way we run it is just click a button on the platform. You get an alert anytime an activist takes that big position. Just invest, wait 12 months, you know, or whatever your target exit is, and then exit. And so you have, you know, if you're an options trader and it's up 60%, you're probably up 200%, you know, on a long option. Yeah, no kidding. With minimal effort. So Uh, one of the things I noticed in the case studies, though, you pointed out that not all activist investors are the same or treated equally by your platform. I'm curious how like you kind of filter that out or how do you how do you guys know which ones are the ones to pay attention to? We, you know, the, the short version is we did the analysis up front on mm-hmm. you know several of the firms to see kind of their track record of success before training the AI. So they, the AI does know which actual investor it is. I guess you're pulling it probably from 13F filings. Yeah, yeah, okay. and um, and you know in some cases news, but because mm-hmm. they don't. Well, it, it, this part's a little squishy because sometimes it gets leaked before the filing right. goes through. And then you have to validate whether or not the leak was accurate. From accurate, the yeah. Because about half the time it's not. And then, you know, we have a little oversight at that point. You know, we mm-hmm. it's like a rumor. Then we have to have some human oversight to be like, all right, does this sound legitimate? You know, is it legitimate source putting it out? Or is this like one of these pump and dump sites that just have <laughs> whatever they wanted to say to make a few points that. Right. Do you guys differentiate that too? Like, uh, rumor versus confirmed we do yeah um not as often as i think we'd like because most of the time we're getting the information direct from the companies mm-hmm. um we have some plans to kind of look at you know some of the rumors in the market just because they're they're fun to see and it, it's usually takeovers or asset sales m a that kind of stuff and mm-hmm. uh you know it's it's hard because it's, it's interesting information at the same time, like, you know, it's, it's possible for someone to be manipulating the market with these rumors. Right. And so for us, it's a difficult decision because we think, okay, maybe somebody wants to trade this, but on the other end, we don't want to see anybody get hurt from bad information. 
Right. But we've largely kind of gone with the belief, like, let's just leave that for later and we'll create a section that's just like rumor and mm. put a big disclaimer that, you know. <laughs> when I, well, the real question is, do you even need it? it? Sounds like there's plenty of opportunities that you guys are identifying just with the confirmed news. That's our feel. I mean, we send 4,000 different event alerts a year right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's plenty of opportunities. So some of them occur, you know, multiple times a day you know, the same mm-hmm. event type but for different companies and others are, you know, two, three times a month type of events. So you can kind of pick and choose your trading style. If you just want to make, you know, half a percent every day, we have those types of investors or if you're not quite that active and you can pick and choose some that are um, a little longer term or in mm-hmm. some cases uh, showing what's going on at the macro level. Um, just because it's like a pivot point for the company. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, last year after the war broke out in Ukraine, uh, we started seeing these huge dividend increases and buybacks and special dividend special dividends by coal companies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Russians mm-hmm. had cut off gas supplies to Europe. And so the Europeans then had to shift to coal to heat them the winter. Okay. And, okay. Uh, and so that was reflected in the events that were coming out of the system. We would start to see these like huge dividend increases, 100%, 50%, and then special dividends that were like 11% of the share price for a one-time dividend. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily know what's going on in the dynamics, right, at the macro level. But when you see the event, like it, immediately you scratch your head, like what is going on with coal companies? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> And you could take advantage very easily of those events because the company is announcing like, we are making more money than we've ever made. Therefore, we're going to give a ton of money back to shareholders. But you can't, as a, as a person, as an individual monitor, like the whole market at once. Yeah, exactly. And so that's where the AI is really helpful because it can. Mm-hmm. Flagging these events and being like, hey, there's something... You know, didn't say anything, but there's there's these events that are coming out, and then you can put together like, well, the last like three huge special dividends were all coal companies. There must be something going on with coal. Let me check the price, and uh, oh yeah, the price is up six hundred percent. That makes sense. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Did you uh, see anything that was uh, flashing when oil was trading negative, or before that event happened? I mean, yeah, they were cutting their dividends. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the big companies, the oil companies, start slashing their dividends. So that's one of the events that we have on there. That was the bigger, I think, red flag. Mm-hmm. And likewise, on the other end, when they started raising or reinstating their dividend, mm-hmm. we didn't have to look at the price of oil. But like right. Exxon came out and they're like, we're reinstating our dividend. And at that point, I remember oil was like maybe 25, 30 bucks a barrel instead of negative whatever it was. It's <laughs> so crazy. Right. At some point I do want to write a screenplay for a, I think that'd be a funny movie for somebody just getting into day trading and doesn't know what they're doing and holds a contract to expiration and then has to take delivery and try to figure out how to sell it. I think that'd be a fun movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like the guys that were doing the uh, ammunition for the defense department. Oh God. Was that the, um, I forget. Was that. it war dogs? War dog. The one with, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are we going to find? God, that was an insane movie. Yeah. I, I listened to uh, them on a podcast, or one of the guys on a podcast, like the actual fa- the story itself really? that he told was just fascinating. Uh, I think it was on Jordan Harbinger. He, he's got some really good guests on there. 
before we run too much out of time here, uh, I did want to kind of pick your brain on on just AI in general. Like one of the things I've been noticing is we're seeing like a lot more applications for for AI since ChatGPT like debuted. Mm-hmm. Like I'm using it for things like writing rejection letters and uh, <laughs> doing my show notes for me. Like now it can like read a transcript and like highlight here's the clips that you should use. Here's the here's the summary of all the discussions. Uh, like there's really neat article I saw about uh, people using that uh, to make breakthroughs and like trying to translate humpback whale language. Oh, wow. That's an interesting one. So there's all these use cases that I don't think anybody would have thought were possible when you just started with something that was basically just trying to predict the next word in a sentence. Right. What do you think, uh, what are your thoughts on the future of this technology going forward? Like how many more applications do you think there are that this could fill a need? I, I, I would say, you know, Almost all. <laughs> think of anything, anything that we do in a day or in a workplace can be augmented or replaced with AI. Um, and it's been in use for a long time, right? Like we've been, a lot of companies have been using AI since I would say, you know, 2010, 2011. Right. Um, particularly in things like Homeland Security and defense and image identification, like satellite imagery to try to understand you know, movements of troops on the border or whether that base was, you know, different this, you know, today than it was three days ago, like when we were looking at when Russia might invade Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of that interpretation is is just an AI interpretation that there's there's differences between this picture that I saw a month ago and this picture today and didn't take a human to look side by side at those two pictures. Like the AI just said, yeah, there's a difference, you know, and then AI can count things like, how many cars are in a Tesla parking lot to, right. to know, right? How, how many cars are they able to produce? Uh, I've seen some AI. Or whether they're running at capacity if their employee lot is not quite full. Yeah. Um, I saw some some AI use that was sort of cleverly done for like Walmart. It was like counting the number of people coming through the door. And then it would assign like an average sale price to try to figure out whether their sales were up or down for that season. Mm. Um, you know, there's just, there's infinite possibilities and the, the generative AI is the one that interestingly got everyone's attention. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it was less interesting than some of the other applications. Like, really? Well, there's one company, you know, for example, that is looking at for drug companies, mm-hmm. how can it identify potential chemicals that if mixed together would have a positive benefit on the human body based upon like thousands of different studies. Yes, that's that's the stuff that I think is super exciting. Like the the other one they did where they basically discovered like 2.2 million unknown crystal structures by feeding uh, the all the known data into a, a AI platform. Yeah. Spit out like a bunch of unknown uh, till that date. Like here, <laughs> I think... What was the total we're at? Like 50,000, I think, known roughly. And like basically whatever that multiple is, just upped it based yeah. on that one study. It's it's incredible. And uh, it's actually a company uh, I invested in myself in a startup. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they look at it and they say, look, if you're a big drug company and you're trying to figure out, like, what is your next big drug going to be? You have to invest $100 million just to determine that next right. drug might be and then at that point spend another 900 million developing it going through the clinical trials and you're at a billion right. dollars before anything's happened 
And if you can eliminate that first hundred million and give yeah, it that's more huge, open up 10, 20 drugs per company. So I'm looking at it and I'm investing heavily in the healthcare sector right now because you just take an average company that's a big healthcare, you know, mm-hmm. pharmaceutical company, they're going to be able to exponentially increase the number of therapies available. And that, of course, is good from a trading perspective, but it's also good from a society perspective where <laughs> we all get to benefit from these these new therapies, which is great because, you know, some of the antibiotics are not working anymore. We've got new molds that are potentially threatening to human health and nobody really talks about, you know, some of the right. that could really take out big populations. So we're going to have to move fast, faster than we did during COVID for some of these things that will emerge. I think AI is, is really in the forefront of expediting a lot of these bits of information. And I think that's kind of where we're at with AI right now, where AI just kind of seems like it's more of a time saver. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where AI is actually creating things that yeah. Yeah. haven't that? Because I don't know how to explain that clearly, but I think you kind of understand it. I do. Like a human can make inferences between like types of data sets and say, oh, well, I've seen this pattern over here. Maybe this applies over here. Can AI do that yet? Or do you think it will in the future? It's starting to now, you know, when you get into the neural networks, right? Because the, the idea of that is it's looking for associations between things. And when it finds mm-hmm. an association and identifies the pattern, then can act on that pattern if it has sort of permission to do so. Mm-hmm. And then when it follows that lead, it's sort of like, okay, we identified a pattern. Now we're going to act on this pattern because you told us to, let's, let's just make it concrete. Let's say my goal is to get as many clicks as possible on an advertisement. Okay. Right. So I'm going to run all the data through. I'm going to find a certain part of the population where they have a higher click rate. And then I identify the sort of psychometrics of that population. Maybe they're, I don't know, they're, they're Trump voters and they live in the South and they love watching uh, Dukes of Hazard or whatever you know, information okay, yeah. you get from Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and then it will then at point be like, okay, now I can hyper target my language, right? I mm-hmm. can test different taglines for just that population rotating through mm-hmm. six, seven, eight different you know, marketing messages until the click rate goes up to a certain point where they find out this is the one that's always going to work to, you know, to create those uh, conversions to whatever product you're trying to sell. And to some, and most of the time, this is what Facebook's algorithm they're already doing. They're right. just not um, selling a product. The product is you, right? Facebook, right? They, they want to figure out how to. Right. The advertisers are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're trying to figure out for advertisers, like how to exactly how to how to change your behavior and how mm-hmm. to target. So and they've got massive, massive supercomputers that are crunching this data all the time. Yeah. I've worked in some of those data centers. They're huge. <laughs> yeah. They're huge. And they need a lot of energy. You know, yeah. To keep them cool. So that's the other piece that I've been investing in is looking at energy companies. Mm. Um, this is a cool company, Bloom Energy, that does sort of uh, fuel cells for data centers so that okay. you have to plug into the grid and pay for as much energy. It's a more of an upfront capital expenditure than it's paid for because they're they're creating their own energy. Through the, the Actually, cell. is that why Caterpillar's done so well lately too? Because they make a lot of the uh, the backup generators. I wonder if... I don't know. I'm that's a piece. I don't know that one. I would guess yeah. that that's just kind of like moving back to, a, you know, we're not going right. to recession play, but... On the the Bloom Energy one, you know, for sure, 
this is a data center that says, hey, we've got a vulnerability. Mm-hmm. We get hacked by you know Russian hackers, Chinese hackers, take your pick. And the grid goes down. The data center also goes down. And maybe you can do a little bit backup generators with diesel, but it's not going to solve the problem for very long. Yeah, no, I think they <laughs> most of them have about 12 hours of runtime, mm-hmm. which gives you enough time to get another shipment in. But the size of the or how much diesel those things go through, like, I don't think you could fill them up in time. No, no. And certainly not when you're you can't go to the station and use the power. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and last time the power went out here, I was like, Better bring the credit card and okay, there's no credit card right. system. Can't get gas. Yeah, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Uh, all right. Well, th- really appreciate your thoughts there. Do you have uh, any more uh, things that you want to say before we wrap this up? Uh, where can people find you? Um, yeah, you know, we we're on level fields at AI. Uh, I would say, you know, you don't have to be a trader to use the system. You can be an investor. We mm-hmm. we launched it so that it automates a lot of the investment research that. That everyone's doing anyway it just takes a lot less time because the ai is doing it for you so uh don't be afraid to to check it out it doesn't have to be a, you don't have to be a day trader for this you know there are certainly long-term plays and you'll find really interesting stocks that you've never heard of um right just looking through the case studies i was finding some there like oh man totally well there's a bias you know in the media they want to cover the 20 30 stocks to get the most clicks so mm, whatever yeah. Elon is up to gets clicks, you know, NVIDIA, Microsoft gets clicks and they sell ads on those clicks. And so you've heard about those 20 or 30, but that's why they're always overbought. Right. <laughs> you to go to the market if you want some real returns. Well, exactly. Well, Andrew, uh, I got to say thank you for, for spending the hour here with us, sharing a, a lot of your story. There's been some really fascinating things to, to pick through. Uh, I'm really excited about learning more about Level Fields AI. I, I think you guys are onto something there. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, please, you know, support the project. We're, we're trying to grow and get the word out, uh, you know, so those big VC checks will come one day. Right, exactly. <laughs> <make it> <laughs> All right. Well, unfortunately, that does mean that we've come to the end of our time today, but that is okay because there is still plenty to learn from Andrew. You can check him out on levelfields.ai and I'll make sure I link your LinkedIn too because I think you have your other podcast appearances on your on your profile there. Uh, we will be back soon with another exciting episode, but until then, um, if you got something useful out of this, tell your friends. Uh, if you didn't, tell your enemies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. So Fair enough. Yeah. Leave those comments, leave those reviews and, and take care. Man, I butchered that ending. (laughs) This podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only, does not constitute financial or investment advice, and should not be construed as such. The hosts, guests, and contributors of this podcast are not licensed financial advisors, brokers, or professionals. Any trading or investment decisions made based on the content of this podcast are solely at the listener's discretion and risk. Trading and investing in financial markets carry inherent risks and past performance is not indicative of future results. Listeners should conduct their own research and seek advice from qualified financial professionals before making any financial decisions. The views, opinions, and information shared in this podcast are those of the individual contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views or policies of the podcast creators or associated organizations. Produced by China Shop Productions.